you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. John chapter 1, as we begin our first week in a study of these first 18 verses of the Gospel of John. There are many, many great and famous first lines in literature. literature. Um, Some are very simple, like Herman Melville's Moby Dick, which begins with three words, call me Ishmael. It's a great first line. Uh, Some are a bit more involved, like uh, Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. He writes, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of, of... I'm sorry, it was the best, it was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness, it was the epoch of belief, it was the epoch of incredulity, it was the season of light, it was the season of darkness, it was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. Uh, some are funny, like C.S. Lewis's The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which begins, there, there was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. I like that. Some are a little bit more subtle in their humor. I think Jane Austen's trying to be funny in Pride and Prejudice when she writes, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Um, And one of my favorites is Frederick Buechner in Godric. He writes, um, five friends I had and two of them snakes, which they end up being actual snakes in the book if you ever read it. But um, <laughs> And if you want to read A Christmas Carol this December, or even if you just go to the play, the first lines of that story are great too, right? It begins, Marley was dead to begin with. There's no doubt whatever about that. Uh, an opening sentence of a story of, a, of, of literature can do a lot to set the tone for a book. And these are all wonderful opening sentences but here in, in John 1, 1, we want to have one of the, the greatest first lines in all of literature. It's a first line that is, is breathtaking, and it, it sets the tone for this first paragraph that is so dense and thickly packed with truth. Uh, and it sets the tone then for the rest of the Gospel of John. These 18 verses communicate more deep truths in a limited amount of words than books that are filled with hundreds of pages and and thousands of words. And so it's good. It's good for us to pause and to slowly walk through this inexhaustible portion of God's word in the coming weeks, not only because it's so beautiful and because it's so deep, but because unlike any of those other books that I previously mentioned, these words are the very revelation of God to us. And so it's good to pause and to meditate and to think on them. I would also say as we begin this sort of four-week study that the depth and the denseness of these verses make them ideal to memorize. Uh, One of the key motivations to memorize is not so that you can show off and show how much you've memorized. One of the key motivations for memorizing scripture is meditation so that you can meditate on God's word. And these words need to be meditated on and mulled over. And the blessing of having God's word hidden in our hearts and in our minds is that we're then able to chew on them whenever and wherever we are. So you might choose a few key verses in this passage. You might decide that in these days leading up to Christmas, you're going to tackle all 18 verses so that as you go about your Christmas festivities, as you stand in line at Kohl's 
or as you sit in traffic on Shelbyville Road or do whatever else you might be doing, you can meditate on the deep meaning of the incarnation of Jesus Christ in those moments. So I, I commend to you the memorization of John 1, 1 to 18, all or any portion of it. But for now, let's just begin by reading it. Um, We'll focus on verses 1 through 5 this afternoon, but I want to read the entire prologue of the Gospel of John, verses 1 through 18. God's Word says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Look again at verses 1 through 5 with me. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The very first words of this passage are clearly meant to take you and I back to Genesis 1.1, and the truth that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John uses the words in the beginning on purpose to remind us of what happened in the beginning in Genesis 1.1. We're reminded of the time when there was nothing and how into that nothingness, God spoke the world into existence. Genesis 1 tells us about the world that God created, but it also tells us about the God who created the world and the purpose for which he created it. And here in John 1, the focus is also on who God is, specifically who the word is and on why he was sent into the world. John doesn't uh, start his gospel with simple truths. Uh, He uses very simple language, but the content is far from simple. Right away, we're taken deep into the nature of God, into the mysteries of the character of God, as John reveals who Jesus is and how God was working through him in the incarnation to bring light and life to a world that's been broken by sin. And in this, we're invited 
in this Christmas season to not simply envision a tiny baby in a manger, but we're invited to consider just who that baby was. Just what it took for God to send Jesus to save us. Just how and why he was going to accomplish the salvation of his chosen children. The focus of these first five verses is especially on who Jesus is. And this is what I think John wants us to see. That because of who he is, Jesus is the only one who can save us. That's our big idea for this afternoon. Because of who he is, Jesus is the only one who can save us. We know that from the moment of Adam and Eve's sin and then the following promise of this one who would come and make all things right, who would crush the serpent's head, we know from that moment on the Jewish people were waiting for a Messiah. They were waiting for this promised seed of Abraham who would bring them the kind of satisfaction and freedom and joy that we read about in Psalm 107 last week. They were waiting for a king, a king like King David, who would bring peace and prominence to them. And John reminds us that Jesus was and is the only Messiah for all people. Jesus is the only hope for the world. Because of who he is, Jesus is the only one who can save us, who can save anyone. So who is Jesus? Simple question, isn't it? But there's some deep answers to it. How does John describe this Savior, Jesus? That's the question we want to spend the rest of our time answering. Who is Jesus? And the first thing we see about Jesus is that he is the Word. Jesus is the Word. John opens his gospel by talking about the Word. In the beginning was the Word. And we rightly understand that he is talking about Jesus. But why does John use the word, Word, to describe Jesus? What's the significance of calling Jesus the Word? In part, it, it communicates the order and the wisdom of God. We have, in Genesis, we have Genesis 1 in our heads. John's put Genesis 1 in our heads on purpose. And we remember that there at the beginning, it was God's creative word that brought order into the chaos of the world. God, God spoke and he made this world a place of order and of logic and of reason. Genesis also also reminds us that the the word of God in the Old Testament and into the New Testament has power to do what God designs and desires. His word goes forth and accomplishes his purpose. So God's word goes out and it does what God wants it to do. In some small way, this might remind you of of Alexa or, or Siri, you know? That, that you have a voice-activated device. You can say, okay, Google, and you can make things happen. You know That's pretty amazing, isn't it? But God does a lot more than just check the weather with his voice, doesn't he? God creates the world and orders all the weather patterns in the world. But we see that by saying Jesus is the word, John is helping us to understand that Jesus is the wisdom of God who comes with creative power to bring order and life into this world. Let me say that again. That's a thick sentence, but I think this is part of why John is calling Jesus the word, is that Jesus is the wisdom of God. Jesus is the wisdom of God who comes with creative power to bring order and life 
to this world. If God is going to bring about a new creation through redemption, he's going to do it through his word. And the word is a person. The word is Jesus Christ. But another reason that John may have referred to Jesus as the word has a lot to do with John's strategy. Uh, not, not so much to do with the truth that he's conveying about Jesus. But, so John says at the end of his gospel, you may know this, that he tells us why he wrote the gospel. He wrote this gospel so that his readers, including us, would believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. And that by believing in him, we would have life in his name. But simply stating in, in the start of his gospel that Jesus is the Son of God may have actually backfired on John and not worked the way that he wanted it to. To that end, J.I. Packer in his chapter, God Incarnate, in the book Knowing God, which is a chapter that I would commend to you for great Christmas Eve reading, and Knowing God just as a great book to read in general. But Packer talks about how simply calling Jesus the Son of God could be easily misunderstood, both in John's day and in our own day. When you think about Jesus being the Son of God, questions come to our minds. Questions like, was Jesus created? Was Jesus some sort of a lesser God? These things pop into our heads when we think about Jesus as the Son of God. And because of these inevitable questions, John decided to speak about Jesus as the Word. And in speaking of Jesus as the Word, he wants to make it crystal clear who Jesus was and is. This is how Packer says it in that chapter. He writes, John knew that the phrase Son of God was tainted with misleading associations in the minds of his readers. Jewish theology used it as a title for the expected human Messiah. Greek mythology told of many sons of gods, supermen born of union between a god and a human woman. In neither of these cases did the phrase, that, that phrase son of God, convey the thought of a personal deity. In both, indeed, it excluded it. John wanted to make sure that when he wrote of Jesus as the Son of God, he would not be understood, that is, misunderstood, in such senses as these. He wanted to make it clear from the outset that the sonship which Jesus claimed and which Christians ascribed to him was precisely a matter of personal deity and nothing less. Hence this famous prologue. So John is writing so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we will find life in his name. And right from the beginning, he wants us to know that Jesus was not just some sort of lesser being, or that he was simply a great part of God's creation. John wants us to know that Jesus is God himself. And so he reveals him as the Word. But more specifically, he's not just the Word. Who is Jesus? He is the eternal Word. He's the eternal word. We've seen that John 1.1 1, 1 clearly echoes Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. And even though John's gospel was written long after Genesis, the gospel of John goes back in time further than Genesis does. John takes us and he transports us to a time before time. A time before the creation of the world that's described in Genesis 1 and 2. If Genesis speaks of the beginning of the, of the world, then John speaks of eternity past, which has no beginning 
And he says that the, the word was alive and well back then. That means that when we speak of the son of God, we're not speaking of Jesus as a product of God's creation. Jesus was not created. For something to be created, you can think about creating something, there has to be a time when it didn't exist. So an artist creates when she paints and brings into being something that has never existed before. She's using things that do exist, but she's creating something that has never been in the world before. And so kids, some of you are drawing. You're creating. You're reflecting God's creative power. You're making something that has never been made before. That's what creation is. But Jesus, the son, was not created in any sense of the word because he was with God, we're told, in the beginning. There was never a time There has never been a time when Jesus was not because he is the eternal word. So envision this if you can, if you can do it without your brain melting. (laughs) Think about the time before time when the Father and the Son and the Spirit existed in perfect harmony and joy and community as they have always existed. It's a time that Jesus actually talks about in John 17, 5. He says, he prays, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And then later on in John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus is the word and Jesus the word shared at then and shares now equal glory with the father he did so in eternity past and he will do so for all eternity because Jesus is the eternal word Jesus is not only the eternal word he is the divine word divine meaning that he is god verse 1 tells us that that the word was with God, and the Word was God. So not only was he with God, but he was God. And those two phrases are perfectly crafted to help us understand who God is. First, it's the fact that Jesus was with God. That tells us that he has always existed, but it also helps us to see that Jesus is distinct from God the Father. That while there is is one true living God, he exists in three persons, and those persons are different from one another. If you are with someone, you are not that person, right? You're you're with them. You are associated with them. You're close to them. You're intertwined with them in some way, but you are not them, are you? You're someone different. You're, You're with them. And yet also while being distinct and different, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are also equal to one another. And they have always coexisted as one. That's what John means when he says the word was God. There's no good illustration for the Trinity, okay? But it reminded me of like a husband and wife. They are distinct persons, but they are one flesh. The persons in the Godhead are distinct, and yet they are one. So if you don't already have a headache from thinking about God's eternity then my goal is to give you one by having you think about the Trinity. Um, 
that the Father is equal to the Son, and the Son is equal to the Spirit, and the Spirit is equal to the Father in their divinity. But the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. And the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Son, and the Spirit is not the Father, and the Father is not the Spirit. They are distinct and different, and yet they are one. God is united and equal in his persons, but he is also distinct. There is only one God, but he exists in three persons. And Jesus, the Word, as part of the triune God, is truly divine. His eternality shows that he is the divine Word. But we can also see that Jesus' role in creation shows this. Because Jesus is the eternal Word, he is the divine Word, and he's also the creative Word. That's what John tells us. He's the creative word. Verse 3, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. The word is the creator of the world. And verse 3 states it positively and negatively. It says that he made all things and nothing was made apart from him. There's no exception. The word made the world and every single thing in it. The power of God's creative word is not really surprising to us here by the time we get to the New Testament, especially when we think about Genesis 1, and we see that God created the world how? By speaking it into existence. Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. The Father always creates by the word, by Jesus in the power of the Spirit. The entire Trinity is at work in his creation. And because Jesus as God is the creative word, he is also the Lord over the entire world that he has created. We'll see later that John speaks of Jesus coming into the world. And when he enters the world, he enters into the world as the Lord and the King over it, even if he chooses to come as a humble baby. He's still Lord and King over it because he made it. You get that mystery? So much mystery in Christmas. The eternal and divine creator entered into his creation through the miracle of the virgin birth. Jesus is conceived through supernatural means, but he's born just like any other baby. He becomes a part of this world. The world that he had made the world over which he has always been and will always be the king. Comes as the eternal word, as the divine word, as the creative word. And when he came as a child, he came as the life-giving word. That's the last thing we see, the life-giving word in verses 4 and 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Those are some words to meditate on. I guarantee I will not exhaust them in this moment. But let's just say this. Jesus didn't simply make mountains and plants and animals, did he? He created human beings, and he, did it in, he, he created them in his image, and then he breathed into them the breath of life, into their eternal souls, into your soul. Into my soul, God has breathed his life. And as the life-giving word, God, Jesus animates all things and he preserves and he sustains all life. 
Jesus is like that one extension cord that you have all of your Christmas lights plugged into, right? They're all in that one cord and all the power is coming from that, that one outlet. Jesus is the one source of life. You live and you move and you have your being because Jesus has given you life and you continue to do so because he continues to give you life. Nothing lives apart from Jesus and nothing continues to live apart from Jesus because life itself is not simply from him. What's it say? In him was life. It's in Jesus. He gives life to all things because he is the source of all life. You may end up shopping for a unique gift this season. And as you look for it, you might find that there's only one place to get it. Not on Amazon. It's not at Walmart. And it's not at Target. And you might have to go to the, like, the source, the actual manufacturer, and purchase it. And in a similar way, Jesus is the source of life. And he alone can give it. He doesn't outsource it to anyone else. He has it. And he alone gives it. All life in all its forms is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. And because all life is from him and in him, the life he gives also shines as a light. The light shines. The, the life that he gives was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. I think John's going to transition and speak of light as salvation light but I don't think he's talking about salvation light here. I think he's just talking about life. That all life points back to Jesus, the creator. That the life that we have from Jesus acts as a, a, life, a, a light in us and in the world to reveal in large and small ways the deep realities of, of eternity and of the existence of God. And the fact that someone has made us and breathe life into us and sustains us. The light of the life of Jesus reveals him to all people as, as divine, as the life-giving creator of all. Whether we suppress it, we all suppress that naturally, but it's still there. And the darkness cannot overcome it. There is true deep darkness in the world. We don't have to pause and think long about that to realize it, do we? But that darkness is never enough to overcome the light that God has given. The God-given life in every single person speaks of a creator. And our creator speaks to us through the person of Jesus Christ. He is the eternal, divine, creative, life-giving word. That life of Jesus calls out and it tells us that this life is not enough that we need to be redeemed that the one way that the one who gave us physical life also must give us salvation and redemption and eternal life John is revealing who Jesus is which is vitally important because we know that it's because of who Jesus is that he is the only one who can save us. And who is Jesus? What does this all say about the word? This, he's eternal, he's creative, he's divine. What does it say? It says that Jesus is 
God. You feel the weight of that? The Word, Jesus Christ, who came into the world to save us, is God Himself. We're going to see later that that's not all that Jesus is. He's also, he became man. And that's equally important to our salvation. But for now, just pause and reflect that the only way for God to redeem the world, the only way for God to redeem your soul, the only way that God could deal with the darkness in the world, the only way that he could save and restore and recreate the world was by coming into the world himself. He doesn't send Jesus as someone lesser. Jesus comes and is God. The baby in the manger is God. And he has to be. There's no other way that God can save us from our sins. He has to come and save us himself. The deity of Jesus, the fact that Jesus was and is and will always be God is not a dry doctrinal statement, okay? This is massively important to what true Christianity is. And it's why it's what makes Christianity different from everything else. It's the way you always know what a cult is because they deny the deity of Jesus Christ because that is what we have and that's all that we have. It's what makes Christianity unique in the world because it means that God has come to earth to rescue us. It means that he's not asking us to find some way to climb up the mountain and get to him, right? It means that we don't have to build some ladder of good works to get ourselves back to God. What does it mean? It means that Jesus has come to earth to save us. It means that in Jesus coming to earth, he says, I'm not asking you to do anything. I am rescuing you. And that's good news. Because it's our only hope. Maybe you've come here today and you've never understood who Jesus really was. John wrote this. The reason John wrote this was so that you would understand who Jesus is, that you would know who he is, and that you would have certainty that he is God. And John wrote this so that you would not only know who he is, but that you would believe in him and find life in his name, not physical life. That's a wonderful gift that Jesus has given to us all. He's breathed his breath into us, but eternal life the life and the light of salvation because Jesus, the eternal word and the source of all life came to earth. Let me start that again. Jesus, the eternal word came to earth and died. That's a mystery. And he did it to pay the punishment that we earned because of our sin. Of course, he did not stay dead He couldn't stay dead. Why? Because he was God. And he rose again. So that he's not only the firstborn over all creation, as Paul writes, but he's also the firstborn from the dead. And he grants forgiveness and resurrection life to everyone who will repent and believe in who he is and in what he has done. If you've never bowed your knee to King Jesus, who is God. 
I invite you to believe in him and find true life. There is no other hope. What a wonderful thing that he just simply calls us to believe. Calls us to come and to admit our sin and believe. He has come to rescue us. It's this work of salvation that we pause and, and we remember with the Lord's Supper as we take this together. We remember that, that God in Christ has come into the world that he created to save us. That the eternal word entered into time and then died. That the creator entered into his creation. That the light came down to shine in our darkness. And through his death and his resurrection, Jesus, the creative word, calls us to bow to him as the king of salvation. And when we do, he begins a new creation in us. He creates new life in us. He makes us a new creation through faith in what he's done on the cross. Jesus is the light of the world and he's the light of eternal salvation to everyone who would trust in him. And so if you have trusted in Jesus, if you would agree that he is God, and that there's no other hope for salvation except in him and his coming and living the life we could not and dying for our sins and then rising again to give us new life. If, you, if your only hope is in Jesus and what he's done, then I would invite you to join us in taking the bread and the cup. We also ask that you've been baptized, not because baptism is necessary for salvation, but so that we know that you've had a conversation with someone and you have taken that first step of obedience of modeling what Christ has done uh, on your behalf and identifying with him. So if that's true of you, I'd invite you to take uh, this Lord's Supper with us. If not, just please let it pass as we try to protect the sacredness of what this is. Reflecting on John 1, 1 through 5, as we take the bread and the cup, just a couple, a few things that we might uh, hold in our hearts as we hold the bread and hold the cup in our hands. One would be just to announce to our own selves and our hearts and even to one another in some unique way that Jesus is God and that he has come to save us. That as we hold the bread and the cup, we remember who Jesus was. He was God. And the reason he, was, he became flesh was to save us. A second thing would be to worship him as God to humble our hearts before him, to not just announce it and acknowledge it, but to have a deep reverence for who he is as the Redeemer. And then maybe to submit to him as Lord in Christ, to recognize what he has done and that he calls us to walk with and to follow him and that we would realize that he's the, the Lord of creation, but he's also the Lord of salvation. And if we've believed in him, he's the Lord over our souls and we owe him our allegiance.